welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at Pub Quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hey, Jewel. Hi, Lauren. How what are, are you? you drinking today? Oh, I'm drinking, um, uh, you know, Julie and I frequently uh, drink wine during our episodes, if you couldn't tell. <laughs> and uh, we are currently drinking a Sauvignon Blanc, 2018 Sauvignon mm. Blanc from Pope Valley Winery. And where's that? That's in Napa Valley, California, oh. Julia. Can I tell you the notes? Mm-hmm. Lemon. Mm. It's crisp. Yes. No no cat pissiness that you would normally get from a Sauvignon Blanc. Nope. Extremely drinkable. Oh, Yeah. Light colored straw, even straw. I would say straw colored, just a great sipping wine for the mm-hmm. porch. Good with fish, chicken, spicy food like Thai. I would say Ooh, carrot cake. Oh, oh, how about that? Watch out, Julia, with the alternative pairing. <laughs> This wine is is very relevant to what we're going to be talking Absolutely. about Absolutely. So this wine is actually courtesy of today's guest, which, you know what? If you want to get onto our podcast, and if you, you, <laughs> like you want to ship us things ahead of time, or drink, that's a really please. great way to fast track your episodes. Yeah. Um, so with us today is one of my oldest and dearest mm-hmm. friends, all the way from Napa, California. We have Garrett Casenza, who is the winemaker at Pope Valley Winery in Napa, California. Hello, Garrett. Hello. Hello, Garrett. Oh, well, I, I do not deserve that kind of introduction. Um, <laughs> well, you got it, first so get all, with it. First of all, I did not bribe you in any way, so MissInfoPod does not bribe in any way, shape, or form. We were not uh, I have the no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have the, uh, I have the memo right here from the MissInfoPod legal team. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for uh, pointing second, that out. It's, a, it's an absolute pleasure to be on with you ladies. Like I said before, uh, I'm a big fan. I replay your episodes all the time. Oh. Um, I've I want to say day one, but it's more like mm, day seven. It's acceptable. Yeah. You know, oh, yeah. it takes okay. a long time okay. for word to get to California. It's true. It's I know. Like, I know. It goes on the train, you I gotta, think. You got to hop on the ponies and mm-hmm. there's like a desert and all that stuff. And yeah. flyover states, we call them. <laughs> I know. Like, like square states have no culture, so it just takes a while. <laughs> Many apologies to those of you listening in Wyoming. <laughs> and we just lost everyone in Colorado. Oh, no. Oh. So um, I've known Garrett since our freshman year of college. We went to Roanoke College in Virginia. Um, Garrett, like I said, my apologies to you. <laughs> yeah. We kept each other alive for a yeah. lot of college. Uh, we helped each other pass honors classes that we shouldn't have been taking. Um, <laughs> And um, we would go to church every Easter. So we were also saving each other's souls. Bless you both. Yeah. That's true. No, Julia saved my soul. So I had a suit with a layer about uh, like a a dust on it about an inch thick. And every April like 15th or so, I would have to start the de-dusting process. Mm Mm-hmm. To wear it mm. the next day. Yeah, because our families would so not thank, be happy if we stayed Thank you for <laughs> thinking about my salvation. It's been a little while. That suit mm-hmm. still has a lot of dust on it. Um, <laughs> but for those four years, you were, can we get religious? Like, can I say she was my Lord and Savior? Mm. Is oh that weird? Wow. <laughs> That's bold. That's a bold claim, sir. Well, I make booze for a living, so there's not much I'm clinging to here. <laughs> so, of course, um, your topic today, since you're going to be presenting to us, is about uh the Judeo-Christian tradition, correct? Yes. We, we drink it. Exactly. Um, no, you're going to be talking to us about, um, presumably, wine, correct? Right, right. Or whatever you want me to talk about. But uh, I prepared for wine, if that's okay with you. Yes, please. We're, I mean, we're drinking yes. wine right now. We might as well be fully immersed. 
So sure, I I see a lot of that bottle remaining. So I want to keep things kind of rolling with you two ladies here. Yeah, thank you. We like this. Mm-hmm. Excellent. excellent. Um, we are on the video chat, so I'm going to say some things, but try to explain it for the audience as well. Uh, so you. I understand that um, the listeners do not have a graduate degree in winemaking, um, like I do. Ooh. And it's not like your, your day job. I'm gonna I'm gonna try to keep this as like ex- there's a lot of like, like what I want to preface is like there's a lot of science and I want to avoid it like as much as possible. Okay. But there's gonna be, there's gonna be times when I can't, so I want to try to make it accessible. So every time that I I give you like the name of a compound or a really weird phrase, uh, feel free to stop me and we can explain, or I'll try to give like an analogy or a parable if I possibly can. Great. Um. Yeah. Yeah. So he's good at uh, this. Yeah, yeah. So feel free to like tell tell me, Garrett. Like, shut the hell up. And what was that you, that you just said? Um, we can go back and retrace anything that we need to. Uh, and the wine industry has done a really good job of intimidating the consumers. So what I want to do now is kind of like break that. So if you have it, like, there's no such thing as a stupid question. So if you have something that's like always been on your mind, please ask. Like, by all means, please ask. Great. I did learn. Hmm. That it is, though, a stupid question to ask, like, if someone's like, oh, this wine tastes like strawberries, to ask them, like, when they put the strawberries into the wine. <laughs> yeah, that okay, does I'll sound like that's that. a dumb question. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> I did have, in what, in one of my first jobs, I was at, I was at, uh, can I give, like, the names of wineries? Where By I all means. Yeah. Okay. I was at Chateau Morissette, and it was in, uh, in Floyd, Virginia. And I sold a woman a bottle of, it was something, I forget what it was, but she came back and she said, I can't get it open. What is this? And I said, ma'am, that's a cork. (laughs) (laughs) Things are a little slower in the country. Yeah, you know what? It's the South, technically, so... Yeah, so she was used to the the Mad Dog 2020, which yeah. is like a weird kind of circular twist of events. Like that was my first job ever making was uh, was uh, Mad Dog and Carlo Rossi. So <laughs> <laughs> that was that was the universe just smiting me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, just That'll like my first job was a Chuck E. Cheese, <sighs> which was founded by Nolan Bushnell of Atari, and now all I do is deal with video game records. Oh my god, you've been cursed. I've been. <laughs> You know what? This is the first time hearing of this, oh and my I'm God. horrified. I am destined to work for Nolan Bushnell's legacy for the rest I'm of my life. I'm going to sage your house when we're done with this. Like, you need to exercise this, man. That's awful. <laughs> but anyway, wine. What is it? What is it? Why should I drink it? I'm, I'm so happy you said, like, why should you drink it? It keeps my lights on in my house, and oh, okay. it keeps my dog fed, and it keeps my wife fed. So if you if you care about misinfopod maybe you're a humanitarian as well mm. um but i'm actually really happy you said that it's like my wine what exactly is it let's get right in um wine is a it's a fermented colloid and right over right off the bat we've got a science term a colloid is a it's a liquid with suspended solids so if you think about um other colloids that you might encounter in your life like milk and butter and mayonnaise which is um egg protein suspended in oil, like mm-hmm. things like that. Wine is nothing more than like carbohydrates and yeast particles and things like that suspended in water, like ethanol suspended in water. That's really all it is. Uh, it's made from grapes. You can make alcohol from any sort of carbohydrate source, potatoes or wheat or blueberries, which is a big thing in Jersey, which is where I'm from, or strawberries or watermelon but for this the sake of the next hour or so i'm going to talk about i'm going to talk about grapes uh specifically vitis vinifera 
So Vitis vinifera are the, the species and genus of grapes um, associated with what we think of like quality winemaking. Uh, North America is also home to the Vitis lumbrusca, which is, if you think of like a, like Concord, mm, mm-hmm. um, yeah, like Concord grapes, if you've ever seen like the very, very grapey, like kind of stereotypical uh, fruit of that nature. And um, Muscadania rotondifolia, which is the genus and species of like what people might refer to as muscadine grapes. When I worked in the southeast for a long time, people would come in and ask for that that muscadine wine. <laughs> which, if you have a chance to do that, I, I highly advise that you that you don't. <laughs> Ain't nothing finer than muscadine winer. <laughs> is that a thing? Are you serious? Wow! I just made that up right now. I was oh, wow! Like, wow! The, <laughs> Nothing finer than being in your diner. <laughs> as a side, as Seinfeld fans, as we record today is what the thirty second anniversary of the Magic Loogie. <gasps> yes, wow. that's a great episode. Wow. June fourteenth, nineteen eighty seven. Oh my god! I didn't even think of that. Oh my god! We should have we should have gotten a cake or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, no. I'm glad we didn't. Just the kombucha. Yeah, yeah. Uh, covered up. <laughs> anyway, anyway. Anyway, any, back to whatever it was I was talking about. Muscadine. Uh, muscadine wine. Um, fermentation. Let's go to fermentation. Uh, that's the process by which uh, yeast, specifically um, Saccharomyces cerevisiae, there are also a number of yeasts that can carry on fermentation, like uh, Saccharomyces bianus, which is more of a, a baker's yeast. Or things like uh, Decora, which is Britannomyces, or Clecora. There are all these. You're about to feel very aware. Like there is, there is yeast <laughs> all over your body, right, right at this moment, right now, like hands in your hair and your eyes. Um, oh, if you like, eyes. Yeah, she yeah, gets yeah, really, yeah. she gets really aware of these things. Oh, <laughs> I know. That's why I said you're really aware. Like I have a few notes of like, what are the triggers of misinformation? <laughs> <laughs> Wow. You've been you've been studying us for too long. Since oh, day yeah. seven. Since day seven. Day seven. Day seven. <laughs> exactly. I'm gonna do the best I can over here. You hear that, Jersey? Yeah. See? Oh, did I just do that? That was like that came out of a holster right there. <laughs> um and like we're gonna talk about Saccharomyces cerevisiae, which is your your general sort of wine fermentation yeast. And it converts uh, sugar, in our case, uh, glucose. I'm going to try to keep this like as science-neutral as possible, although there is some fructose in wine, into ethanol, which is alcohol, uh, giving off heat and carbon dioxide as byproducts. Right. So if you're, if, you're, yeah, yeah, if you're happy enough to stand next to a, a fermenting tank during harvest, which is always a lot of fun, like really late night at 1130 when it's six degrees in the cellar, um, the tank is 80 and it's nice and warm and you can back up to it like a little bear. Uh, the process occurs <laughs> anaerobically because it, there, it's without the presence of oxygen. So what uh, fermentation actually is, is I can talk about, you know, yeast metabolism up and down, but I'm not going to do that because it's, it's like another topic for another day. The way that you and I make energy in our bodies is we breathe and we use the oxygen in what's known as like the glycolysis and the TCA cycle. And it's, it's very energy efficient. Um, fermentation on the other hand occurs without the presence of oxygen. So it's very, uh, energy inefficient. Mm. So what did, what the cell actually ends up doing these, these, um, these fungus cells is poisoning themselves as they ferment into wine. So it's kind of like this tragic beauty kind of model. And what you're drinking is like this 
this final product of these little organisms. And that's like the, that's the romantic in me that's going to come up every now and then in this. Please don't. That's perfectly fine. No one has ever explained it to me like that. I know. Like I'm drinking. Like dying so I'm that we can enjoy ye- this. Yes. Yeast. Death. So that you can, so that you can live and enjoy. That's the, and I feel like you can't make wine, um, for fun or professionally without having that romantic in you just mm. driving every step of the journey. And that's, like even though I come from a, a very science driven background, like I have a I have a BS in biochemistry and I've got a, a degree in winemaking, but there's still that there's still that artistic side of you that's always pulling you one way that you want to like you're just so focused on what you taste and what you feel and what your heart says. Like mm-hmm. that's that's the main driver and the science should be used to kind of back up what you what you want to do in the cellar or what you want to do in the vineyard is kind of like, yeah, maybe this makes sense or mm, I'm going to lose my entire crop if I apply that. What what science has been able to do in the last probably 130 years since Louis Pasteur and Carlsberg and things like that is actually give meaning to what we've been doing for thousands of years on tradition as, oh, I, I put it in this pot because it tastes good. Yeah. And now we can actually like put something behind that. Yeah, there's a reason and there's like a scientific basis for why these people do through trial and error discovered that if you want to make it taste this way, or if you want it to be this level or whatever, like this long in the vast flying around this part of the forest are better to put near your pot of liquid of fruit. Yes. So now there's a scientific basis behind it. Exactly. Like it evolved very anecdotally. Like my wife and I spent a couple of weeks in Italy back in March and they were able to tell us, like, we, we did things for, for hundreds of years prior to us actually learning, like, this is why things things actually worked out the way they did. And now we learned that, like, like maybe that wasn't the best way. And we're, we're cleaning this pot a little bit better than we did before. Mm-hmm. We drew a little bit better than we did before because we know, like, what actually lives within the pores of these wood now. So wine contains anywhere from 800 to 1,000 different compounds. And we're going to sit here while I list every fucking one of them. <laughs> All right. Well, you Just should spend this whole episode. <laughs> no, seriously. Those are the boring notes that I wrote. And I threw this out a long time ago. I figured that wouldn't test very well with the audience, mm-hmm. um, which, which can be summarized as uh, about 86% water, depending on where you are. Um, if you're on, if you're in Australia, it might be listed 83 because they like to push their alcohol a little bit more or parts of central California, which likes to push it as well. Well, they um, have to get drunker in Australia to deal with all of the massive, terrifying creatures. Yes. That, very that they just habit- know, cohabitate with spiders, just massive, the spiders, massive oh creatures God. that just, did you ever watch that, uh, that Steve Irwin? Oh, yes. No, oh, he would crikey. go around and just like put his thumb up everything's ass just to make it <laughs> mad. And like, <laughs> I mean, RIP Steve Irwin, may he rest. <laughs> that's too but, soon i did something too soon didn't i <laughs> still get mad anytime you talk about a stingray people are like mm. fucking stingrays <laughs> no they're like oh, no. angry <laughs> about it yeah oh <laughs> they're like yeah we're not saving you when you get on line <laughs> <laughs> you still owe us yeah <laughs> from the crocodile hunt. exactly right. yeah that's right there's a lot there's a lot that has to be redeemed <laughs> so higher alcohol content usually in higher the alcohol. australian anyway, wines or if or if you're in a very uh, a very cool area that does not experience a lot of ripening which i'll talk about later oh do you mean um, like, like like western new york <laughs> like western new york or canada which is some really great spots in canada or germany you got might get a little mm. more closer to like eight percent 
or nine percent alcohol, things like that. Uh, you might get anywhere from one half to one percent glycerol, which is a it's a bi it's a polysaccharide. It's a byproduct of like lipid metabolism. So that's something that you're going to get from from a yeast. Mm-hmm. Is that uh, what gives us like a texture? That's gonna it's it's aromatically neutral, but it's going to give you that feeling of viscousness mm-hmm. and weight on the palate, yeah, like and a glycerin. Like, yes, like uh, like when you like say glycerin. like a like a, a Chardonnay can be oily. Mm-hmm. Right. That's, that's precisely what it is. Mm-hmm. Like people go for like high glycerol producing yeast when they're making things like, things like what I do, like Napa Cabernet, because they want that, they want that palate weight to go along with all that tannin and maybe that lack of acid, but I'll try to keep my opinions to myself <laughs> as well, much as I can. I don't want to, um, I don't want to like shame any of our listeners by our, like, clearly we're very knowledgeable. <laughs> We've been to like, I don't know, probably like 300 wine tastings at this point together. (laughs) And we always like, you know, we always like listen intently when Mm -hmm. they tell us about the things. And then, you know, we already know like which wines we're going to like and not like. So it's um, it's fun to get to try to bandy this (laughs) back to somebody that is is on our side. Yes, exactly. No, I'm I'm, I'm with you 100 percent. I think it's I think it's great. Half a percent of organic acids and these acids in in wine predominantly are like tartaric, uh, but it also contains a small amount of like malic acid, which is your predominant acid in apples. Like you bite into a Granny Smith apple, you'll get that that green sort of malic acid, that uh, green apple jelly rancher. Oh, okay. Maybe yeah. that's the best way to describe Okay. Um, yeah, but we also have some lactic, which is the dominant acid in things like, like milk. And I'll kind of talk about that malic lactic relationship. Uh, there's a little bit of citric acid as well, um, succinic, which is like just natural acids that occur throughout metabolism and things like that. Um, the major difference between grape varietals, though, and if you think of like a grape varietal, it's like a breed of dog. Like we've been we've been talking about dogs the whole time here. Um, so like Syrah and Merlot and things like that, like they're they they share probably ninety nine point five eight percent of dna but it's that point four two percent that's going to make them aromatically and texturally and sensorially different things like that mm-hmm. uh and that's that's what's going to come across in like the tannin and phenol profile as well as like these these compounds that become like we refer to them as like aromatic precursors and through fermentation these compounds actually change form and become aromatically active so where if you bite into a grape and you might get like a very basic sensation of watermelon, strawberry, and a little bit of blackberry with some very green apple sort of acid. When it ferments, it's going to become something totally different. So uh, part of my part of my job, and one of the really hard parts of my job, is being able to see down the line three years as far as like what that grape is going to taste like mm. in the bottle. And that's, that's where the art comes in as well. So phenolics, and I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking about that. They're, Essentially, they're they're plant defense compounds. They're they're in the same class as like sterols and steroids and things like, like like things that make baseball players hit home runs. Oh wow! Like yeah, I know. Like baseball was made better with steroids. Anyway, <laughs> so um, what you're saying is, if I drink enough wine, I can hit a home run. You too can hit a home run. That's true. That's oh, that's the that's all I that needed to hear. <laughs> bullet point. The, yeah, I mean, like we wouldn't be living in the places where we are if we can hit all these home runs. That's true. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just made my dad's life. I mean, can hit home runs. Maybe I can play for the Sox. <laughs> How would you know? Oh, I, I feel like she could. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. There's so many things that we that we start talking about and we're like, maybe I could do that. Maybe <laughs> I could be a marathon runner. I just don't know. I haven't tried. Maybe we can run really fast. We just don't know. I've never tried to run really fast. Maybe I tried that. Really it's good at really pole not vaulting. that fun. There's so many things that it's like, maybe we could be a race car driver. There's the sky's the limit. Exactly. We just haven't tried these things and yet. And we won't, but the, the idea is there. And that's what keeps us going. I'm, I'm in full support of the the misinfopod second career fund. So if you want <laughs> if you want if you want to send in send in some coin, I'm sure things we could be much be good at opera. Yeah, maybe I have an incredible voice. I don't know. Maybe I haven't tried hard enough. Yeah. <laughs> so wait. So are there right. <laughs> so are there steroids no, in wine? Is that what you're saying? There are sterols, but not necessarily like steroids. Okay. So it's 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 close, but no cigar, like kind of one of those situations. Okay. Um, so try as you might, like you can spend a lot of time at home in your own lab, like you might be doing right now, like trying to get like berry bonds. Okay. Um, I I can't say with any kind of like certainty that's gonna work, but <laughs> damn it, you can try. Okay. Thank you. That's all I needed to hear. <laughs> yeah. So these these compounds taste very, very bitter, and they do so for a reason. The, the plant puts them out as sort of like a, a way to prevent them the, uh, the fruit from being eaten too early by oh, okay. birds or bears or bears beats Battlestar Galactica <laughs> or, or pheasants or whatever might be going through your vineyard at the time. Because like when you think about it, it there's, it's a very elemental need for all life on this planet to reproduce Mm -hmm. and that's that's really what we're talking about here the purpose of a grape is to get ripe enough and sweet enough and attractive enough to be eaten by something and to have the seed uh deposited elsewhere Mm -hmm. and to spread the population of said grapevine or whatever like a strawberry or a blueberry or whatever you want to grow Mm -hmm. or any kind of tree um that's really what they're out there for. So in order for the seed to be at optimal ripeness and to be at, um, the plant tries to defend itself until the right moment. And then, um, it makes itself as available as it possibly can. So we have, um, we have plants out there just, just being ready. That's very interesting. I never thought about that, that that. an unripe fruit is sour and unpleasant tasting for, yeah, for a reason. That's very interesting. so if you have if you have strawberries in your planter right now and they're probably very green because it's in the middle of it's the middle of June in Rochester, I don't advise you to do it. But if you butt into it, it won't be a very pleasant experience for right. either of you. And I want I want to save you from such. Um, but the blueberry should be coming up pretty soon. <laughs> uh, anyway, these phenolic compounds in wine, uh, I'll I'll try to generalize as much as I can. They're either condensed or hydrolyzable, and so what I mean by that is like a a hydrolyzable tannin has a sugar attached to it, and that's usually something that you get from a barrel. And I'll talk about that oh, okay. in a little bit. Yeah. So a condensed tannin is um, something like anthocyanins, which are the, the color compounds in red wine, or some of these other um, structure building compounds in in red wine, or even in white wine. Uh, they're known collectively as like flavanols, and the way they associate when you think about like a wine aging over time, the best way that I ever heard it described was if you picture one of these phenolic compounds as like a pancake, what the pancake wants to do is be attracted to other pancakes. Okay. So it's like eventually you have a stack of pancakes mm-hmm. and that's what like you go from a very, a very, very bitter um, sort of astringent 
kind of palette sensation. And when they stack up, you get the smooth, silky, velvety, sexy kind of uh, mouthfeel that you get from a mature, like ready to drink bottle. And what these what these tannins do is they stabilize color. So if you picture anthocyanin as like a strawberry on top of the stack of pancakes, like that's stabilized color and you'll be able to stay red. So it just makes it like more attractive and more sexy and more fun. Wow. Oh, oh I didn't know that. So I didn't know how, any of those words. No. That's how, yeah, that's how sexy You need to go to more than three. <laughs> I don't know what sexy means. Sorry. Can you please take a second? Um, <laughs> We're going to take a quick break. No. <laughs> Okay, uh, so phenolic, like phenolic compounds in wine, are specifically located in the skins and the seeds. The uh, the mesocarp, kind of that in between area between skins and seeds, is um, sort of aromatically neutral. So if you think about the uh, the predominant tannin in seeds, they're known as catechins, and the skins are catechins, and the seeds are known as epicatechins. And the epicatechin is, if you if you taste it, it's way more bitter than the tannins in the skin. Mm. So when you're when you're making wine and when you're macerating your grapes and when you're when you're pressing, you want to try to avoid breaking seeds as much as possible because those those uh, epicatechins are incredibly bitter. So like a little bit of bitterness is good. Like good espresso should be a little bit yeah. bitter, but too much just takes it over the top, and you don't you don't want that. Like doesn't sell very well because at the end of the day, like this is a business after all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like if you're um, like, um, we do a lot of like you pick fruit and stuff around here. So like there's always <clears> like a ton of Concord grapes yeah. that have the big freaking seeds in the middle and you can't avoid them. So you're inevitably going to like bite into one of those seeds whenever you're eating a Concord grape. And it's like that you get that bitterness. So it's more bitter the seed than the skin. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. But does that seed taste a little bit like hazelnutty kind of fun? I always found it to be very, and I think this is probably why you don't, you obviously don't want them in the wine is that the bitterness is so strong that it's very overwhelming to the rest of the flavors. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you did a great job in episode 92 intoxicants. Andreas does, uh, going through the history of <laughs> <laughs> the history of wine, but I'm, I'm going to recap it just a little bit and kind of expand on, uh, some of the things. Please so do. the, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So what he was talking about, the earliest records of, uh, of wine production date to about 4,100 to 8,000 BCE in Georgia. Hell yeah. Uh, and again, yeah, yeah, yeah. The earliest known winery is uh, still currently being excavated in Armenia. So, uh, Julia, you put Armenian wine on blast in that episode, and I tell you that's something pretty goddamn good. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm just saying it hasn't quite made it to us yet. Yeah. One of my former employers actually like he made enough he made enough money and he has enough like influence he's gonna do whatever the hell he wants but he decided that one day he wanted to he wanted to make wine in the place where wine originated so he partnered with this guy in Armenia and if you ever find um, Yakubian Hobbs out where you are uh, he has a pretty large like New York distribution but it's totally worth it for like 35 bones okay all right i'm into we it check it out yeah we have enough money so in the I'm paypal gonna, account I'm gonna, to, <laughs> I'm gonna try to change i'm gonna try to change your mind here i know like you and i go back to the days of arbor mist where it may or may not be carbonated and <laughs> like that's a product without a ton of integrity it's like uh it's like what do you mean like what do you Blackberry Merlot Arbor Mist doesn't have a lot of integrity. I don't know if Julia told it you had this, a lot of, Garrett, but Blackberry Merlot 
pairs beautifully with Cheez-Its. Oh, just a cheese it does. puff. No, it really does. It really does. <laughs> is it's heaven. That's a product with a lot of with a lot of heart and drive. <laughs> It's very kind. That's very and kind of you. it's very budget friendly. It is budget right. friendly, yes. You could buy it at the CVS in Salem. Please. <laughs> Nothing to it. Yes. Ian J. Gallo, please don't sue me now because I think you own that. <laughs> <laughs> That's currently being excavated. It's about 6100 BCE. And it's also well publicized that the ancient Egyptians cultivated vines for the production of wine. So uh, if you go into these pyramids, there are there are very clear depictions of vineyards and trellising and people harvesting for the purpose of fermenting grapes to make wine it's a cool feeling to know that you're you're part of something that is or has been around like much longer than you have and will be around much long like far after you're gone so mm-hmm. one of the uh, oldest so professions yes yeah it really is second to um the other one yeah the other one uh google it programmer <laughs> <laughs> And we just lost all of our listeners in Silicon Valley. <laughs> so the, the spread of viticulture, which is the, the science of grape growing, uh, westward is most likely due to the, uh, the Phaeacians who spread knowledge outward from city-states along the Mediterranean Sea. So uh, you picture places like Lebanon, Syria, present-day Israel, like this was the center of grape-growing knowledge. And then people like the ancient Greeks came in around 5000 BCE and took that to their empire, and the Persians took that, trying to think, oh God, east. So it went across places like Iran and Iraq and that like into the Fertile Crescent, that sort of area. And that became that became the hotbed of wine growing um, about seven thousand years ago. The hotness. Uh, the great the hotness, right? The the ancient Greeks used to used to throw things like um, like pine tar oh, wow. and pitch and honey and maybe not necessarily like hemlock, but other kinds of herbs That's into their wine. <laughs> I know, unless you were like Aristotle, in which case they were like, yeah, here, why don't you drink a little bit of the goodness? And he said, oh, sure, it's Thursday at six, why not? <laughs> it's six o'clock somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't have the license to actually say the correct thing, do we? No. No, we got to pay a lot <laughs> yeah. of royalties for Jimmy, that. We don't pay Jimmy Buffett any royalties. Yeah. You're right. <laughs> <That's so laughs> we don't want to become on his radar. No, no. Because he, he is litigious. I talk a lot of shit about Jimmy Buffett, actually, in real I actually life. have a, uh, a memo here from the uh, Miss Infopod legal defense team. It's a cease and desist. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I know. It's they're, they're, Wow, they were fast. Much quicker than usual. <laughs> Uh, so the ancient Greeks in turn spread that from Greeks, Greece and places like that to Sicily, Italy, the rest of Europe, wherever they, wherever they had sort of like cultural influence. And then from the ancient Greeks, of course, we have the ancient Romans and they used, they used wine as like a military tool. Like it Mm. powered up their soldiers and that's why they took over most of Europe and, and Asia and places like that. So wherever the army went, the wine went as well. And, uh, a lot, what's, actually really, really cool is a lot of these ancient sites are still planted today, like the Rhone Valley and Burgundy and Champagne, like these areas that we associate with very, very high quality wine. The Romans found these 2000 years ago. We're still planting today. Like these were all areas that the, that the army occupied and planted divine in order to supply the army with enough foods to keep going mm. 
north or east or south or west or wherever they wanted to be. Because also the water was terrible. Yeah, that's true. That's we true. We cannot express this enough. Everything was Everything disgusting. Everything was filthy. Stank. The water was awful. Terrible. There were horses you. dying of anthrax. All the time. It was a mess. It was a mess. So wine, beer. Oh, horse dying like senators in 2001. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> Is it too soon to make an anthrax joke? Anyway, the reason that these that these areas are still planted is because they're still special mm. and the reason that like vineyards survive for two like for two thousand years is because they have something to give and I'll, I'll i'll talk about that later when i talk about like viticulture and things like that so the the roman empire adopted christianity as the official religion in about the fourth century B, uh ace and Christian significance on wine is based on the earlier Jewish beliefs in which the the vine or the vineyard was used as one of the the favorite symbols of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. Mm. So they took this and just sort of ran with it. So wine became more heavily used in religious ceremonies uh, throughout like the height of the Roman Empire. And when it fell, the care of grapes and vines and things like that fell mostly to uh, the care of like monasteries that had already been been sort of set up um it's argued that christian communities need for a, a grape-based wine was needed to to celebrate the the eucharist which is communion and it's one of the main factors of enabling viticulture to survive like the fall of that roman empire mm-hmm. in 476 ace so there's um there are tales out there like the germanic tribes that conquered rome were destroyed all the vineyards but in actuality like the things that like jancis robinson and people like that like some MWs have found is that like the Germanic tribes were really fond of wine mm-hmm. and they wanted to preserve everything they had. And I'll kind of talk on like the future of people who conquered other people and wanted to preserve wine a little bit later, but there are records being, uh, being found in Gaul as early as like the fifth century that um, they, they really tried to preserve what they, what they had had and uh, try to learn as much as possible and keep these keep these vineyards going because they liked what they were what they were producing. Mm-hmm. So bishops and monks organized most of the vineyards and winemaking through the Middle Ages, uh, though they appear to have gained most of their lands as grants from royalty or nobility. And that implies that there were a large number of like non-monastic vineyards that survived the invasion and they were well maintained, whether it was like privately or whether there was like some kind of co-op situation going on, but there were, there were a lot of vineyards that were, that were being cared for. Like the people saw these as something that had to be maintained. And then they were given there by decree of whoever was in power to somebody else, but they were, but they were maintained. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's not, like, it's not like everything was, was plowed under as a result of like political or social conquest. Also uh, part of this book that I've been reading all year and I finally finished and it's so good is the Royal art of poison. And it talks so much about the de Medici family and how Mm. they just had all their poison gardens and their like method of choice was like, we're going to put some of this poison into this wine. Oh yeah. Here you go. Yeah. So that's another reason why the vineyards in Italy kept going. <laughs> Cause yeah, the Medici's because- were like, this is perfect. We need a lot of, we need a lot of wine so that we can poison a lot of people so they can get more land and get more power. Exactly. So, so what you're saying is a lot of these vineyards, um, that were, I guess, started by the Romans in different parts of Europe and, um, Western Asia are, were contiguously, um, used like they weren't all like plowed under because a lot of the local people and the people who were who had like who were left over after the Romans left 
continue to use it as winemaking. Like you and I, they garnered a lot of pleasure from sure. what came off that land. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like, are we really like life is hard enough? Like our our drinking water is shit. Yeah. Like my donkey is sick. Yes. I need something to get me. I, I take the edge off. Yeah. And there is there's a vineyard right over there. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Are we are we really going to take away the one thing that gives us pleasure? No. Yeah. Exactly. And that's that's something that like every civilized culture throughout the course of history has had some kind of like alcoholic beverage. And I don't know if that's that's all of like humanity finding a common ground or we just really want a chance to get drunk. One way or another, like we we found like if you watch like Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park, life found a way. Yeah. Like, alcohol <laughs> <find a way. laughs> exactly. Exactly. Alcohol yeah. finds a way. I love that. It always finds a way. Put down the back of the the misinfo pod shirt because mm-hmm. I feel like oh, I fa- I feel like a lot of this is run on like Google and alcohol. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> it's true. You've discovered our secret. No. Oh we God! I cracked the code. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, here we go. So, um, in the Middle Ages, the Benedictine monks came to own most of the best vineyards in Europe. Uh, so the the monks of Colonay own most of the vines that's now Gavrilly Chambertin. And I know that Julia is cringing every time I say a word in French. But you know what? It's kind of fun that way. (laughs) The Abbey Abbey of Saint-Vivant is now uh, owned by what is now present-day Vauremont, which is um, a very, very specialized coming of Burgundy. Benedictines held six monasteries in the Riem, which is in Champagne, while in the Rhone Valley they possessed most of Cornhouse and saint Perret. Uh, they're regarded as the first to plant Chardonnay in Chablis in the 10th century. Like these guys did a lot. And a lot of this tradition still survives like Chardonnay in Chablis and Chardonnay and Pinot Noir in Champagne and Pinot Noir in Champagne and Syrah and things like that in, uh, in the Rhone. And a lot of like what perpetuates throughout winemaking today, especially in these older regions, like in, in Germany and in Northern Italy and in, central and southern france is based on what these people planted almost a thousand years ago mm-hmm. uh, so tradition is a, is a very very big thing in our business it's, it's also like one of our biggest handicaps as well the way i approach winemaking is if someone tells you that's the way we've always done something and that's the reason why we do it that like that's the time to revisit the mm-hmm. process yeah like that's like that's an opportunity for improvement we have like granted a lot of these a lot of these ideas and a lot of these varietals have worked in these places but it's it's a very it's a very very old way of thinking and i think that's what's holding us back like if you look at research with um with beer for example beer is always on the cutting edge so if you want to see what's going to happen in the wine industry in the next 50 years look at beer now really that's where where milkshakes Chocolate Double peanut IPAs, butter, <laughs> sour everything. We would not have a modernized industry, at, and I, I use the term probably very loosely, as we do now, if it wasn't for uh, Carlsberg in Denmark in the 1880s. Mm, okay. So we, we actually owe them a lot. And if that might be another, also another topic. A toast to the Danish. Okay. Hooray. Yes, to the Danish. Cheers. 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 What do they say? What do they say? They don't say they don't say Dankeschön. That's probably wrong. That's thank mm. you. But in German, it's Prost. Prost. Yeah. Prost. Cheers. Yeah. So, um, so I guess what you're saying is that look to beer production in terms of like 
um, what's happening next for production of wine. Not necessarily right. like flavors or anything like that. They're always they're always on the cutting edge of things like like technology mm-hmm. and isolation of yeast and things like that. Okay. So um, a lot of like the the fermentation yeast that were first uh, that were first uh, isolated and cultivated were done in the beer industry, and then um, wine kind of adopted that mm. uh, some years later with the help of like Louis Pasteur, who we'll get to in a little bit. But that's we're we're very slow to adapt because tradition is such a big part yeah. of what we do. And it, it, it'll resonate in everything that I talk about. Like the reason we use uh, 60 gallon barrels or the way we trellis the way that we do like things like things like that, like why we put a certain varietal and a certain bottle size or bottle shape. Like it's, it's all tradition and for, for better or worse, that's, that's what we're looking at. But I feel like um, there's a generation coming up now who's going to challenge everything that's, that's been going on. So if you're, if you're a winemaker in 2019, it's a very exciting time. Oh, that's great. Mm, cool. Look to the documentary on them on Netflix I in know the year too. 2040. I can't wait. There you go. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Not a big deal. Uh, so colonialism and uh, Spanish mis- missionaries uh, brought vinifera vines to the Americas. Um, Jesuit missionaries in the 17th century were the major wine producers along the coast of Peru. And the Franciscan monks are credited with introducing viticulture to the coast of California in the 1770s. And they, they started in kind of the Baja region and made their way north from like San Diego up through Los Angeles and San Luis Obispo and what's now San Jose into, into that area. So they, everywhere they stopped to build a mission, they would also plant a vineyard and that would also, that, that would, um, for their, for their community and things like that, like, because wine is so intertwined with, religion at this point uh it's also during this period of colonialism that things like port become styles of wine because Mm -hmm. you had much like uh andreas talked about ipa which i know that maybe it's not your favorite thing but (laughs) it had to to survive it had to survive the seafaring journey um they realized that adding fortified spirits in which in this case uh brandy to wine would bring the the alcohol up to about 20% in the final wine. It was very stable to go across the ocean in a barrel or, or whatever you had in the bottom of a ship and would last when you got it. You also needed it to like be good while you're on board because mm-hmm. let's face it, that's the time when you really drank. Yeah, no kidding. Those <laughs> yeah, rickets, man. Exactly. <laughs> and the, and the, the, it doesn't do much for your scurvy, but at least like you can, you can take care of like the day-to-day. You yeah. can maintain like a good, you can't you can't be day drunk if you don't start during the day. <laughs> that's that's a great motto. That's a great. That's yeah. going on the t-shirt. <laughs> oh, I've got a. I don't know. I got a bunch of them. I'm gonna make a merch t-shirt. store while we're at it. <laughs> I should. Yeah, there should be like a Miss Info Pod Etsy or whatever. Mm. We could do a collab with Pope Valley. Oh my god, <laughs> Miss Info Pod X Pope Valley. Yes, I love this. A line of shirts. Yeah, and then we'll have your company paid for it. You can't get day drunk if you don't start during the day. Exactly. When the sun is up. The bachelorette parties. Can you imagine? Julia, we would make a mint. Wow. Done. We're doing it. All right. That's my retirement plan because (laughs) I don't have one other place. (laughs) All right. So we're talking about history. Um, So it's also during this time. we're, We're like in the mid 1600s if you want to pinpoint yourself historically 
the establishment of Bordeaux as a premier wine region as we not necessarily like as we know it today, but prior to the mid 1600s, it was known as like a bulk wine area. Mm. So where things might be selling like on premier today for thousands of dollars a bottle, it was like, just blow it out, get it across the ocean. We're going to, we're going to grow it. Most of it's going to be distilled in the cognac, which is just a town that's a little farther North. But this is, this is the time where there was a, uh, a British journalist who in his little, in his little diary mentioned uh, Chateau Haubriand as like mm. the greatest wine that he had ever tried. Mm. And Hopriant is loaded with spelling errors, which is bad even for me because I can't spell. Um, <laughs> but that's what that, that's what really like popularized. Like, oh, there's actually a, a chateau got that got named, and then competition grew, and quality got better and better and better. And uh, by the by the mid seventeen early eighteen hundreds, um, a lot of Americans were going over to Europe, like. Not only Thomas to Jefferson. Get, yeah, Thomas Jefferson was Benjamin in it Franklin, to win it. Yeah. John Adams. Are you, gets... are you reading my notes? <laughs> no, yeah, like, I saw Hamilton. I, I read The Billionaire's Vinegar. I know what's up. <laughs> Spoiler alert for you, The Billionaire's Vinegar was a fake bubble. Yes, exactly. I read the book. It's yes. great. Oh, okay. That, mo- that okay, book anyway. is so good. It's probably the best book I read, a, a nonfiction book that I read that read like a fiction novel. It's- Wine forgery and art heists are two of my favorite topics. They're the best. Hey, really? Yeah. You already have like one up on my quiz. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Jefferson, as you so, as you so noted, um, he might be infamous for other things related to his his help, mm-hmm. but he was a notorious lover of uh, French and Italian wines, mm-hmm. and he kept extensive tasting notes when he was traveling back and forth, um, and people to to fight this war against the English. And one of the things that he did when he was over there is he was he was tasting all this wine, and in his notes, if you actually read his notes now, he names his favorite four uh, Bordeaux producers, and that's uh, Chateau Margaux. Chateau Lafitte, Chateau Hopriant, and um, God, I'm forgetting the last one. Uh, Chateau Latour. Latour. Uh, and incident, yeah. So, in, I know I, it's one of those things. But incidentally, when the French government decided to take over uh, the control of quality of French wine in 1855, these four chateaux were named as premier crew in Bordeaux. So these are these are what's known as like the top tier. Mm-hmm. Okay. And they had a. a I know Julie is looking at me for like French pronunciation here. It's a deuxième crew and troisième crew and things like that all the way close enough. I know you're like, you're cringing and I just, you took French. (laughs) He doesn't care. That's all right. Barrett. You're fine. Don't worry about it. That's fine. You don't like the the French I know now is like off a bottle. And even that's like suspected. That's okay. So (laughs) you're fine. You're fine. No one speaks it. It's okay. I feel like this is a, a very tight circle of trust going on over here. <laughs> yeah, it's a circle of trust. It's just you. It's just the it's three just of us. us. No one's listening to this. It's just a conversation this. between the three of We're us. Fine. No one else is listening. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, oh, God. Oh, I don't hope think about it. Don't think about it. I don't want to hurt your listeners. Oh, no, man, you're, fine. So you're fine. You're fine. You're fine. Okay, great. So Napoleon the II the um, categorized all these chateaux by what he deemed as like their quality at the moment in 1855. And that was the first time that any kind of uh, government had instilled any kind of like 
regulation or quality designation on wine. And we're going to see that that comes up more and more and more from that point forward. So the Italians do it, the Spanish do it, the French do it. The Americans um, were still sort of lagging behind in that department. We, we like it more for marketing. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the, but I'll get to that in, in a little bit. The 1870s, we just see a little bit of, we start to see scientific advancement when it comes to wine. Like Louis Pasteur identified the mechanism behind fermentation and he developed what's known as, as germ theory. So be prepared to be, to be very aware of what's on your, on your skin right now, all of your bioflora. There was a there was a spontaneous generation theory that was alive for many many years, and he he dispelled that. So without contamination, you could not have fermentation. Mm-hmm. So if you if you if you existed in like this perfect little bubble, you would stay in this perfect bubble. But as soon as something was introduced to you, then then biologic things would would start to happen there. Um, well, that's why the bubble boy had to stay inside his bubble. Yeah. I That's mean, I, right. Yeah, it wasn't really a bubble. It's, it's, it was more of a divider. But it's more of a plastic a divider. divider. Yeah, it's a typo. <laughs> it's his moors. <laughs> we were the moops the other day at, yeah. at trivia. It was great. We won. <laughs> we usually uh, do. Congratulations, ladies. Thank you. <laughs> like you usually do. <laughs> he also identified what he called um, wine sickness, which is uh, lactic acid bacteria that creates volatile acidity. So. Volatile acidity is what like people what we call VA, which is a combination of acetic acid and um, ethyl acetate, which is what what you might know as uh, nail polish remover. Oh wow, mm-hmm. okay. So it's bad. So it's bad. It's, it's something you you try to avoid. Like a little bit of VA is okay. It gives like a it almost gives like a like an aromatic lift to whatever kind of red wine that you have, um, okay. like a cherry or an almond. But but too much too much is actually illegal, and I'll get to that too. <laughs> oh my god. Uh, so then he he identified wine sickness, but then he tried to pasteurize wine. And the French were like, oh, this is great. And then they tasted it and it's like, oh, this is not so great. <laughs> you, have, you have killed the aromatic properties of our wine. So that's why we don't pasteurize wine anymore. <laughs> I see. Okay. <laughs> Milk, yeah. So, sure. Yeah. Milk, yeah, yeah. Um, wine, we... We want to leave that sort of unadulterated. Uh, so the French AOC system, which is the Appellation d'Orge Contrôlé, which I know Julia is just like giving me the stink eye right now. Doing great. You're doing great. Yeah. Uh, issued its first laws on viticultural designations in 1905. And what that means is um, if you have a vineyard in Vauremont, or if you have a vineyard in uh, Clos-Bougeau, means you can only grow this certain sort of varietal, which means you can only grow Pinot Noir. Or if you're in Coronas, you can, and uh, or, if, or if you're in Condrieu, you can only grow Viognier. Okay. Um, they have a they have a very they have a very specific uh, set of laws as far as like what you can do, where you can do, mm-hmm. and so it puts a lot of emphasis on the quality of ingredients going in. Okay. Seems important. Yeah. yeah. Right. And it's not just like, it's not just for, not just for wine. So they have AOCs for things like bread and Jeez. the Italians have like cheese, like the Italians have AOC or DOCGs for olive oil and cheese and things mm-hmm. like that. So they, they took the system and they ran with it, but it, it really, really puts the emphasis on the quality of the input. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, 
fun fact for you, the origin of the AOC dates back to 1411 when Roquefort cheese was relocated by the uh, parliamentary group. So that's the, the first AOC is Roquefort. Okay. That's good to know. know. Yeah. Uh, you know what? Maybe it'll make you some money someday. I hope it does. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so in 1919, the laws of the protection of place were passed, and these specified the region and commune in which these certain products could be manufactured. So like um, the French did this, but the Italians did this as well. So where you have uh, Parmesan cheese in Parma and you have, you have things of that nature, um, you could only ha- like raise the sheep for this cheese or these cows for this cheese in this area mm-hmm. it was very similar to, like you could only grow these grapes in this area um and they started to uh dictate like what formulas could be like the italians said that like chianti could could be uh sangiovese with a maximum of a certain number of other varietals but then like a maximum of 15 percent could be trebbiano which is actually a white grape oh wow Ooh. okay so that's when they so that's when they started like dictating what could actually go in. Mm-hmm. It placed even more and more emphasis on on the quality of the ingredients, like I said before. And that sounds um, very crazy to us here in the land of the free and the home of the brave. <laughs> but right. so, but we're making wine in America like anything goes. Yeah, yeah. We, we grow everything everywhere, and we try <laughs> like that's that's our entrepreneurial nature. Like that's our that's mm-hmm. our. Um, you know, back to back World War champs kind of mentality. <laughs> like we're gonna do whatever we want where we want. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But it but it makes sure that the products are so much better. Yeah, that the quality that there's no like knockoffs. You're not gonna buy an Amazon version of of Bordeaux. Like it's ship it, from China. Exactly. It's take you eighteen weeks to get to your house with free shipping. But, but it's gonna be three ninety nine plus shipping of a dollar ninety nine. <laughs> so you know, you talk about knockoff Bordeaux from China. Oof. <laughs> oh man. But yeah, oh. I mean the idea of like you can't call it champagne unless it's from the champagne region, like that seems silly, but the fact is is that they're trying to maintain a level of quality and Authority and authority, yeah, absolutely. Right, right. They're taking ownership of their of their country's pride exactly. in their product, and they're going to present it to the rest of the world. Um, and it, it really means a lot. And I feel like um, where we are in America today, like we can take a lot of notes from what they are doing from the past. Yeah, and like maybe we're not ready for that now, but sometime in the future, like it'll be it'll be time to actually regulate what's going on. Yeah. Well, I mean, is it, bur- is it bourbon that has to be from Kentucky? You oh, can't right. call it. Yeah, that's or like, exactly right. That's, yeah, our, that's yeah. it. That's our only thing. That's our only thing. <laughs> that's our only thing. But that's a big one. Yeah, I mean, hey, it's still, you know, it's still a spirit, so. Yeah. So um, we go into the 1940s, and most of the, the really, really prized vineyards in Europe were spared uh, because the Nazis really liked wine. And even during retreats across, yeah, I know, I, I, yeah. I, had, to, I had to bring it up, like Please. retreats across Italy, like through Tuscany and north into places like Switzerland and across France, um, Hitler destroyed everything that he encountered, like railroads and cropland and whatever he thought would be beneficial. But if he saw if he saw something that he liked, it was like I'm going to save that, like the. Like the Ponte Vecchio in Florence was the mm-hmm. only bridge that survived. Like he he picked and chose. He liked art. And mm-hmm. He liked art. He liked he pretty liked, things. He liked right, tasty like, things. Yep. He liked tasty things. And to our credit today, like these things 
survived. Like that's why we have a 1945 Mouton Rothschild, which might have been like one of the greatest ones ever made, which is just like the little V for victory mm-hmm. on the label in 1945, which is just a, a really cool little jab, but it's, it's like a really like culturally significant bottle. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So uh, things kind of progressed along um, post world war II. Europe is cleaning itself up. Most of Napa, California is still wheat land. There are a dozen wineries and places like, like Napa and Sonoma. Uh, and then we get to the judgment of Paris in 1976. Mm-hmm. And that's a big, that's a big moment for us because it showed that like France wasn't the dominant quality wine power on the world stage. Um, so we, we entered, uh, probably the story that everybody knows is the 73 Montalina Chardonnay. And there were, there were others as well, but like that really freaked the French out and it forced them to look at, um, how they were making wine. How were they growing grapes? What kind of like sanitation they had in the cellar? And it, it forced the old world to monitor to like modernize. And it showed that places like in the new world, which was, which was us, which is South America, which is South Africa, which is New Zealand, Australia, so like we're we're not we're not the B team anymore. We're not the also rans. Like there is actually quality wine that can be produced in a region other than Italy, France, Spain, Portugal, mm-hmm. places like Germany, places like that. Yeah, and not only um not only were we meaning like the new world for all intents and purposes, were making good wine and that during the judgment of Paris that was like an like an acknowledgement of that. It was that we were making good enough wine that it was at the level of competition with like the old world, which was unheard of up until that point. Am I correct? It's funny you say that because I feel like um, at the time there was only like one reporter who actually covered it. Oh, okay. And we would not have gotten so much press and gotten so much publicity if the French weren't so mad. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) they get so mad sometimes. Right. Because they, they, there's like, how how is this possible? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it was. They made a way bigger deal of it, and they probably, if they hadn't, if they just like brushed it off, maybe, like maybe I don't have a job today. I don't <laughs> yeah, know yeah, what it is. yeah. But honestly, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. like the whole course of history could have could have changed, mm-hmm. and I could have pursued my biochem degree and been this happy little lab, lab rat and been cool with it, and not known like this whole world was open to us. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a Whoa, very. Man. It's a very pivotal point for our business, like specifically California, but I feel like California is kind of on the, the tip of the spear for the rest of the country. So you look at places like like New York now, like which was where quality wine was made for, for hundreds of years before you know, like before California, but now like they're really starting to get their due. Hell yeah. And Texas and Oregon and Washington. Wait, go back. Texas? I know. <laughs> I know no, seriously, we'll talk about that. Like so um <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a, uh, yeah, we'll get to that later. I don't want to give anything away. Oh, okay. Uh, so today wine is made on uh, six continents with the exception of, say it with me, Antarctica. Tuberculosis. <laughs> oh, Tuberculosis. Oh, you know what? No. I, was, I was holding that one in the hope that like someone would shout out an STD. But <laughs> because I know Miss Infopod loves their diseases and STDs. That's true. Yeah, we don't true. condone them. No, absolutely not. But we no, acknowledge no, their not existence. In the word. Often and frequently. <laughs> <laughs> so today, uh, as of as of the time we speak, there are about 
7.5 million hectares under vine. That's wow. that ha that you really hate when you're talking about ha. data. Ha. Ha. That that equates to about 18 and a half million acres of American land, Shit. which is really the only land that matters. <laughs> So as of as of 2017, the 18 data is still right back to back World War champs. The um, the 18 data is still outstanding, but Spain has the most land planted to vine. Okay, that's uh, 975,000 acres or hectares, uh, followed by you care to take a guess? France, Italy, Italy. Close, close, close. Um. Mm. I don't know. I would, uh, if you said close to France and Italy, I don't know. Uh, Australia? Mm, no. You're actually closer. Is it like China? Uh, two, South number, America? Number, number two is China. Uh, <gasps> you know what? We should have thought of and that. You know what? That's all within the last 10 years. Wow. wow. Holy shit. Yeah. And it doesn't leave the country? Because we don't uh, see. Uh, yeah, that's true. There, and like like Andreas said, and that, like it's mostly to Cabernet. Oh, okay. It's like it's like eighty percent Cabernet, Cabernet because they want to. A lot of Chinese grape growing is trying to emulate Bordeaux because that's where oh, the market yeah. is. Um, How about so that? it's China, yeah. So Spain, China, France, Italy, mm. uh, but Europe accounts for seventy percent of total wine production. Okay. And wow. the largest, the uh, largest producers in terms of wine volume are Italy, France, Spain, and the U.S. So Spain is the largest in terms of acreage, but third in production. So the, what that tells me by like looking at the data is that vine spacing in Spain is super far apart. Oh, so really, really, because their their vine density and their tons per hectare or tons per acre has got to be lower than what's going on in France and Spain. Okay, and interesting. So I'll get to that in a little bit, and actually, it actually makes sense. Um, so world production in 2017 was 293 million hectoliters, which is about 7.7 billion gallons of wine, which is a, a gallon for every man, woman, and child on the face of this planet that we, we call home. That's That freaks me out a little bit. That actually gave me a little bit of an existential breakdown. She doesn't so, like yeah. the ocean. She doesn't like nope. space. And no. she doesn't like when we talk about billions of no, things. No, I don't like it. I would. I, I don't mind the ocean, but I would hate space. <laughs> right? It's so vast and dark and cold. Yeah, no. Oh, it just doesn't end. No, it yeah, doesn't. It really is. Oh, wow. I got the, I got the heebie-jeebies. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, Cabernet Sauvignon is the world's most widely planted wine grape. It's terrible. It's about, yeah. I, <laughs> wow. I, I will not disagree wow, i find okay. myself bored with it but there are a lot of people who love it to the tune of three hundred and forty thousand hectares which is about eight hundred and forty thousand acres see here's the thing i like sauvignon blanc and i like cabernet franc but cabernet sauvignon is awful to me yeah that's my are taste you, like, buds my, are you reading my notes <laughs> <laughs> Garrett, like we've been to me. more than 300 wineries yeah, in the we last. know a thing or two about <laughs> wine yeah, I I'm just so oh, I'm so proud. Oh, that's lovely. Oh, it's right here. It's all it's all right here. Garrett didn't drink wine in college, which is why all of this is so much more shocking. He did not that's drink true. in college. Oh wow. Garrett Garrett thought he had an Olympic career as a runner and then realized oh, yeah. that like and then I was alcohol was. Three. 
Oh, dude, alcohol is so much better. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, you're making up for it now, so... I sound like a complete bro right now. I belong on like Bravo on Summer House or whatever. That's all right. They don't drink wine. They don't drink wine. No, they drink rosé, which <laughs> is what you're drinking right now. Yep. Uh, so 13 varietals cover about one third of the world's plantings, according to the OIV, which is uh, the European wine making governing body. Okay. Uh, yeah. So, so 13 pretty much control the world. There are about 10,000 known wine grape varietals. Uh, and if you go to any town in Italy, they'll tell you that there is like one varietal that they originated and like it's their own. It's the best. Yeah. So they have, they have like three, they have like three of them. Yeah. Like Italy has like, like three, three or 4,000 of them. Oh my gosh. Uh, the most dominant planting in New Zealand is of course uh, Sauvignon Blanc is about 65% of like the total tonnage in that country. The most common planting in Italy is Sangiovese, which is only about 8%. So that tells you like what kind of diversity they have going on over there. Uh, in France, the most common varietal is Merlot. It's about 14%. It's about 14% of like total acreage or hectacreage. I don't know how they talk about it over there. Under vine. The in the US, the most common varietal is of course Cabernet, because that's where the money is. Uh, followed by Chardonnay. So Cabernet is 10%, Chardonnay is 9% respectively. Okay. Uh, the white the the white grape with the world most worldwide acreage is Albarino. Oh, okay. How about um, that? It's, that's yeah, that's Spanish, Spain, it's, right? Yeah. In Spain it's about 539,000 acres. Like that's I, a Yeah. I do like a Spanish white. I will tell you. Yeah. I like a vino, a vino verde. verde. Mm. I like an Albarino. Or something like that. Yeah. So crisp. Green. Beautiful. Green. It's mm. fun. It's like you go to if if you're in Spain, they talk about Albarino as like this big fat, viscous, like masculine style wine. But it's I, I feel like that's not how I get it at all. Like mm. Albarino is very aromatic and very beautiful, and there are like very sexy feminine kind of qualities to it that I, I really dig. Um Albarino is really starting to take hold in California too. So I, I hope it okay. takes off. The climate is like, is perfect for it. That's awesome. Anyway, um, I'm getting all. Overclimbed. And like, I'm fantasizing about Albarino and things like that. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh my God. So I feel like I would be remiss if I did not talk about winemaking without a discussion about like actually farming because nine months out of the year, like what I do is contingent on what happens in the vineyard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, like, and, and like farmers are so underplayed in this country. Like you have to have an understanding of like how to grow a vine and how to grow a grape, or, like a quality grape in order to actually make wine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so the structure of a, of a grape vine, if you picture a, if you picture a tree that's sort of in a T and it's maybe two or so feet high, with mm-hmm. two arms that are going out, like if you're standing in a T, like in the middle of just space or in the middle of a pool, um, something like that. So your arms in that case, if you're standing in your T, would be your cord, or they're called cordons, C-O-R-D-O-N. Okay. And the rest of your body, that's that's your trunk. Great. And maybe about, maybe about halfway down your body, maybe around your waist, um, that's where the scion, which is the top half of you, which is your... <laughs> <laughs> which is your your vine stock meets your root stock, which uh which would be like your waist down to your feet. 
And okay. so what we, what we do now is we'll, we'll pair uh, rootstock to vine stock or to, to scion, things like that. And we're trying to, we're trying to optimize what's going on in the soil and like nutrient uptake and water uptake and nematode resistance and all of the other stuff. But you want to pair that with what's going to grow and taste good and sell. Like ultimately this is the business. So I've got to sound like, like the Gordon gecko, like read is good kind of thing. Um, Always but you've be got to closing. be able to sell what you've got. Exactly. Like you, you can, you can have the greatest wine in the world, but if you can't sell it, it's really not worth anything. Yeah, exactly. Like if you can't share, if you can't share it with people, like it's, what is it, what is it really worth? Mm-hmm. Um, so like a typical, like cordon trained grapevine, um, if you picture yourself as the T again, where your head is kind of like the head of the vine and you have these, you have these spurs coming up along your forearms and then your bicep, you might have, uh, five on a side or you might have eight on a side but that's where your canes are going to come from and the canes will generate um your leaves and your clusters and things like that so you have a t with canes coming up and mm-hmm. you have your clusters hanging down so that that's a cordon train and that's something you'll see a lot with like cabernet where i am um specifically in napa valley but if you go a little bit west towards sonoma uh, cooler climate regions will do what's known as cane pruning. So you, instead of like standing in a T, you'll be like standing at an I. Um, the head will remain the same, but all those canes will instead like emanate from the head of the vine. And what that does is it really dispels like damage from uh, frost. Oh, like okay. a cooler, yeah. So like all of that, all that heat is kind of concentrated towards the trunk and towards the ground and what it's trying to do is like force all that green growth like towards the ground and it keeps you protected through extended like frost periods or cold periods or things like that okay Uh, Okay. so it's a yeah it also takes a lot more skill to prune a vine for cane pruning than it does for um like the bilateral cordon or something like that uh the cane prune the french word is eo and there are a dozen sort of training patterns and the australians do stuff that we've never seen before um but let's worry about these two that i just talked about for now because like training a grapevine that's another i've said it like four times now it's another topic for another day to think about though like we just Mm -hmm. kind of think there are grapes they grow on vines you You pick pick them. them and you kind of don't until you are at an actual um, vineyard and seeing how they're growing, mm-hmm. like to see that there's actually like a uniform pattern that yep. there's actually, there's, you reasons. know, stuff is planted a certain distance apart. Stuff is on a certain level of maybe it's on wire, maybe it's mm-hmm. on fencing, that kind of thing. Like just to, that there is, there is a method to all of this madness. Exactly. I'm happy you said that. Like there's a certain method to all the madness, like in a certain like distance apart. If you have very, very fertile soil, what you want to do is plant very densely to each other mm-hmm. like maybe a meter apart and a meter across because what that does is it increases competition in your soil on each vine and it'll decrease yield so a vine is very much like any other plant or tree out and if you give it enough resources like it's gonna it's gonna want to go like it's gonna want to grow and propagate and do all the things that trees and plants do mm-hmm. uh, but if you're actually growing for size and flavor and quality what you want to do is you you want to relegate or you want to you want to regulate that development of the berry like you don't want it to be too big you want to be a little bit smaller so we call that like we call that rdi it's like relative or regulated deficit deficit irrigation um 
it's preventing things from getting too big and it's increasing competition in the soil per how acre of vine. Mm, um, okay. Yeah. So like the more densely you plant, the smaller these vines are going to be, the smaller the berries are going to be, the smaller the clusters are going to be. And presumably like the higher the quality is going to be, but also at the same time, you have to remember that you like, if you're a vineyard manager, you're getting paid by the ton. Mm -hmm. So do you really want to cut your yield that much? And that's the balance that we, that we walk is if you can grow the same quality grape at four tons an acre compared to three, you're going to make more money at four. Yeah. And so like, and that's, that's what puts food on your table, like Mm -hmm. for your, for your kids, for your family. And like, it's, it, I know it's a very unromantic way to look at it, but that's how that's how people like I have to look at it. Yeah, like, right. or if I get six tons instead of five tons and get the same quality, like I'm going to do that all day long and twice on Sunday. Sure. Now you know like what a vine looks like. Now we'll talk about like during the growing season what actually takes place. So we we operate on what's known as like growing degree days, and that's um, you take your maximum temperature, subtract your minimum temperature during the day, which is usually like 50, 52 divide by two and subtract 50 and like these number of units will accumulate to 2,500 or 3,000 or 3,500 or whatever it is like depending on your growing region. So we have them in California anyway, we have them, we have them separated from like one through five and like growing region one is the coldest and growing region five is like the middle of death Valley in the middle (laughs) of July. (laughs) Yeah. So just um, in every every grape varietal has its own growing degree day requirement at which at which it's going to uh, bloom and set fruit and um, be mature and things like that. But usually uh, in the middle of spring, like right around St. Patrick's Day to the end of the month, like that's when you'll start to see like little buds burst from the vines. Like that's what we call bud break. That's when you see the first bit of green growth kind of on these vines uh and then the shoots will grow and grow and grow until right around um the middle to end of may mm-hmm. okay. and that's uh yeah so that's and that's when we start to see flowers develop on these vines like the little clusters will develop little flowers and what's cool about grapevines is that they're self-pollinating they, they don't require they don't require bees or oh, wow. birds or yeah so but that flower is this little white flower is very, very sensitive to things like rain and frost and all that other stuff. Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, for that 14 or 21 days that your flower is exposed, like a little bit of wind or a little bit of rain is going to knock it off and you have no berry. So it's a, it's a very dangerous time. We're a little bit later in, in Napa this year. Like we're, we're kind of ending bloom right now. And when, when, bloom ends and fertilization happens of that flower then you have what's known as berry set and it looks like a little green bb like it's very very hard and green it tastes very bitter it's full of these phenolic compounds that i talked about before and for the rest of the summer like the the vine will start to develop green shoots again and it'll start to like photosynthetic activity will divert all the sugars into the berry and it'll start to develop this berry into a very sweet, very flavorful kind of reproductive structure. Mm. And that's that like when everything kind of comes into harmony, like flavors and phenols and your seeds taste ripe, like, um, like hazelnuts, things like that. The chemistry looks good. The acids are there. 
uh, then it's time to harvest. And harvest day is the most important day in the life of in the life of any wine, um, because once you once you pick it off the vine, you can't take it back. Like mm-hmm. what's been accumulated, you can never you can never ever take back. So when you're talking about like a fully mature grape cluster, we kind of talked about <laughs> the structure before. I, I mentioned uh, the ectocarp, which is the skin, the mesocarp, which is the juice, the endocarp, which are the seeds. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, if you go into if you go into Wegmans, shout out Wegmans, <laughs> and you buy <laughs> because I, I grew up with that too. Um, and you buy a cluster of grapes, all that that stemmy shit, sort of in the middle. Mm-hmm. That's known as the rachis. Um, R-A-C-H-I-S. That's all rachis material. Like that's the stem that holds all the berries onto the cluster. Mm-hmm. But you sound like a real asshole on the crust and the crush bed if you say, like, hey, put the rachis in this bin. We call them <laughs> the jacks because they, they look like jacks that like people would play with. Yeah. Um, I don't know if kids are still maybe kids play jacks on an app on their phone now. I, I don't never know. really learned how to play jacks, Neither to be I. honest. They were like I know what they we looked like, but it never yeah, never really stuck no, with me. I don't me. understand. It's something about bouncing a ball and catching and it and picking them up. Picking them up. Who knows? But yeah, it's a lot. Uh, no one who can know. No one knows. No one knows the rules of jacks. I don't have the hand eye, so like, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so everything that happens from the time you pick until the time that 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 grape hits the bottle, it's all like a stylistic de- decision. There are thousands of different ways that you can you can combine these steps or you can you can do little offshoot things and so uh we'll start with we'll start with white wine so if you're if you're fermenting say like that sauvignon blanc that you had in front of you the first thing you do is you pick it we pick at night because that's that's easiest on the grape um the skins are a little bit thicker at night and if you start to rupture skins when you pick you you make way for lactobacillus bacteria which is going to turn your 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 juice into into va which is what you don't want um especially when you have no control over it it's also easiest on the crew as well you got to think about the people who are picking your grapes like picking picking grapes is fun for like 10 fucking minutes and then it's the worst job (laughs) when it's 109 degrees outside yeah what time is um what time of year is harvest season for california uh, so we we start like sparkling. Like if you're a fan of like Schramsberg or Mum Napa or Domaine Carneros, sure. I feel like you've been to Domaine Carneros, Julia. Yeah. Um, it's gonna be like late July, early August. Okay. And then if you're like the standard white harvest, it'll be um, end of August. Okay. Reds will start trickling that time as well. Like if you're in Sonoma County, you start to get Pinot that time of year, and then. September and October are busy with like your Rhone reds and your Bordeaux style reds. Okay. It's usually around here. It's like late September is when yeah. it seems like harvest time is for a lot of wineries mm-hmm. and places like yeah. that to, the, to harvest. The winery that I can walk to living yeah. roots winery in Rochester here. Um, <laughs> nice. So they do some, um, they do mostly like finger Lake whites usually, but mm-hmm. then they do a lot of Australian reds because the winemaker is from Australia. So they go to Australia for like a month each year. And I think that they just got back in May from, um, from like a month of harvest in Australia that for their right. reds. Yeah. So because they're like March to May. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And like New Zealand is like January to April kind of thing yeah. yeah yeah so halloween is traditionally like our cutoff day okay. oh okay we pick our we pick our sauvignon blanc it's uh it's four o'clock in the morning it's all ready to go what i would do first you can you can either um de-stem it and crush it a little bit 
or you can press it whole cluster. And we got to come back to phenolics before like white wine is always a question of phenolics. Like how bitter do you want your white wine? And most people are going to say not very much. Yeah, exactly. Right. (laughs) There are some varietals where like a little bit is stylistically acceptable, like Viognier and Marsan and Roussan and, um, people, for example, like Rhone Whites, but if you're growing Chardonnay, Sal Blanc, Chenin, things like that, you're going to want it a little bit on the crisper style. Mm-hmm. So what we're doing now, like what technology has dictated, is that you you put all these all these clusters, what we call as whole cluster press, so they go right into the press. Like you pick them and you dump them and they go right in. And stems either you and press all. stems and all. And what you're doing is either uh, we have, um, if you've, been to Napa and you've seen the the bronze statue of the guy with the wooden basket, like got one foot on it and he's hanging off the side and working it with his arm. That's a, that's a basket press and he's just working it with everything that he has. Um, fortunately enough, we have like hydraulic versions now where you hit a button, you a time and a pressure and it goes bloop, bloop, bloop. And it pushes your grapes down and it gets all the nice juice out of there. Or um, they look like, these other presses um, with bags inside them look like long tubes and they have balloons on the side and you'll fill them to whatever pressure you want and they'll squeeze the juice out. Either way, it's like uh, you're, you're getting very clean, very like if you were making olive oil, this is like the extra version cut right Oh, here. sure. Yeah. Yeah. So you want to go, you want to go very, very low because the harder you press, you're going to get more and more phenolics and that's like potential browning and bitterness and things like that. And it's like nothing that anybody wants. Um, from there, you want to introduce your yeast, like we talked about before, uh, your Saccharomyces cerevisiae. Um, that'll ferment from anywhere between like 20 and 30 days. So that Sauvignon Blanc that you had in front of you fermented for 35 days at like wow. 50 degrees. Like I like to go cold because I feel like you preserve a lot of that like lemon curd, mm. um, like a little bit of the slate, a little bit of the the flint. Like that's my that's my style. Mm-hmm. But I feel like you've got to work with what the land gives you. Mm-hmm. So if I, if I, if I lived in a place where like tropical flavors just abounded in Sauvignon Blanc, like Santa Barbara, for example, I would ferment a little bit warmer okay. because that, yeah, because yeast at that temperature, like to unlock these compounds that make your flavors a little more melony, a little more pineapple, um, mm-hmm. a little more yeah. All things like that so that's that's where you go with that now if you're making if you're making red wine you want to ferment on the skin so when you're making white wine you want to press and get that juice immediately off red wine you get your color and your flavor from the skin so you want to ferment on that so like you do stem and then you've got to manage your cap for between like 14 and i mean i've done as much as as like 60 days okay. of incorporating okay. all those skins into your must to yeah. get all that color and all that flavor. And then after that time is up and it's all based on taste, you press that off and you get your finished wine. We've heard of like some rosés that they're like, we keep the skins on for six hours or like 12 hours. Yeah. Yeah. You know that rosé that you got in front of me? Uh-huh. Four hours. See? What? So I got I got in half that fruit and I, I put on my, my swim trunks and I stomped around for... <laughs> No, I, no, seriously, I stomped around for a little bit, <laughs> and then I started my, I said, hey, Siri, set a timer for four hours, and this was like 8.15 in the morning, and so at 12, at 12.15, we put it in the press. Wow. 
And that's the cover that you see. Oh, so yeah, you stepped on this for four hours? Uh, it was like 20 minutes. It was fucking cold, though. <laughs> <laughs> Brother, you don't know cold. <laughs> <You're>... <laughs> that's right. You're still in like winter, aren't you? <laughs> Get out of here. Not My snowbrush is still in my car. Yeah, Julia hasn't trusted it yet. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> It's like, it was like 74 degrees today and she was like, nope, I'm not, no, leaving not the, the brush. July. I'll yeah, take my July. out from July to August. I will put God it back it. in it in could, September. It could still happen. It yeah. could still happen. Hey, you never know. It has definitely, ha- it has definitely snowed in June. So. <laughs> no, I trust you. Like in Jersey, it snowed in like March, April. So yeah. you're, I mean, you're like Canada junior, are you? Know? Yeah. yeah Canada really light. Yeah. Canada light. Okay. They make good wine though. Uh, Canada makes good wine. Yeah. There's a lot of things all about Canada. Yeah, between like Ontario and BC, that's some of the best dessert wine I've ever had in my life. I think life. you guys are going to have to come and visit. Yes. And we'll take you around Finger Lakes and then we can go up to Niagara on the Lake. They have and good we'll wines. take you around some of the Niagara on the Lake places. Yeah. Okay. I think you'll like it. I'm down. I'm very much down. I feel like this is an experience we have to have and I can probably write this off. As a- <laughs> yes. Yeah, you can. It's research. We can write it off. We, can write it off. we have a business. <laughs> All right, we're back. Sorry, the the must. No, we're we're not back. Do you know what a write off is? <laughs> For no. taxes, knows what it is? You just write it so, off. Write it off. No, they're the ones writing it off. <laughs> <laughs> At red wine, it's time for press day. Once you feel like your tannins are in line, your alcohol is in line, your your sweetness is down, um, your flavor is there. It's like that's all. Probably the second most critical day in the life of red wine is when you press um and i make it sound big and scary but it it really really is so things now go to barrel and like what the hell is a barrel and i'll kind of talk about that i feel like the miss info pod demographic knows what a wine barrel is the fat part of it if you if you look at it from the side and it's laying on its side the really really wide part that's called the bilge Mm -hmm. and the Mm -hmm. two flat parts on the end that's called the head Okay. okay so the the head meets the stave wood on the side and that's the bent wood that's kind of curving and forming the structure of this barrel that's called the crows and that bit of bevel cut on the edge of the barrel where you can kind of like put your hand and spin it around that's called chime um the hole is obviously called the bug hole so if you have a uh, sophomore sense of humor like i do that never gets old (laughs) There are two main uh, species of oak in the world that contribute to the production of wine barrels, and it's uh, Corcus alba in the U.S. That's white oak, or uh, Corcus ruber in France. Traditionally, that's what they use. Uh, so, thirty-two percent of France's forests are committed to uh, growth of oak trees. Mm. Okay. Oh, how about like that? that's how, you know what it? People say it was Napoleon who did that. It actually goes back to the days of like Louis the Fourteenth and Louis the Thirteenth. So back in the day, you had your family's ration of firewood that the government would control these forests. And they would say, you can cut this tree at this time. And you would cut that tree and you would bring that wood back to your family. Oh, wow. And Napoleon decided to expand on all of these. And he said, I'm trying to take over the fucking world. We're <laughs> going to use these trees for the Navy. And that's what he did. Yeah. So um, a lot of these forests like hereby expanded. But these are the forests that we cut today for oak production and they're still controlled by the french government um and what people do to buy a barrel is you have somebody go in and bid on these lots that are auctioned by the french government 
So uh, these these staves are aged from anywhere from like two to three years, and they're toasted over fire, or or there's all kinds of crazy shit that goes on now. Um, but that's what goes on inside a wine barrel is like these these staves are assembled, these heads are put on, the wine goes in, and then ethanol extracts all of these like toasted compounds, like these phenolics that I talked about before. Mm-hmm. Um, so in barrels, they're the hydrolyzable tannins, and that's what we're talking about, like like vanillin and guayacol. Vanillin is obviously vanilla. Guayacol is that smoky kind of chocolate, and there are all these these range of flavors in between that you can get into your wine over the course of time. These are also the reasons why people like the smell of old books because they're made of they're made of trees, oh, and the trees give you that vanilla smell and that. Smoky smell and that musty smell, and it's very comforting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a natural comforting flavor and smell. Right, you're like you have these, you have these new barrels that smell like cinnamon toast crunch, and automatically, like you're transported back to, you know, six year old you at mm-hmm. the breakfast table, being ecstatic as fuck that you got cinnamon <laughs> crunch. <laughs> exactly. So, what happens in a barrel is not only are you extracting these uh, these barrel derived flavor compounds that are just so so delicious but uh, more often than not your wine is going through what's known as a malolactic fermentation and that's the conversion of the very green apple malic acid that you have in your grape to a more softer palatable more viscous sort of lactic acid that you get and you know depending on depending on your white wine this might be like a stylistic idea for you like the Sauvignon Blanc that you had I eliminated any kind of possibility of right. malolactic fermentation because yeah. I wanted that green apple to kind of shine through with that lemon and that mineral because I felt like it worked mm-hmm. however like I didn't want that I didn't want that mouthfeel I didn't want the viscosity however with things like Chardonnay or they like most reds are going to go through that malolactic it's not necessarily a fermentation it's more of like a conversion on your tca cycle from malic acid to to lactic acid Mm -hmm. Uh, it also has something to do with like microbial stability as well so if you don't necessarily like sterile filter your wines at bottling and you haven't gone through ml your bottle could potentially re-ferment and like blow the cork and it's not good subsequently like blow your (laughs) so we're not we're not going to do that. So I, I, if you're gonna if you're gonna inhibit ML, you've got to take the right precautions. Like you've got to you got to filter all your all your yeast out of there, all your bacteria out of there. You've got to be very very stable, very very clean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's something that people try to do if they inhibit ML. Like there are still a lot of like old world kind of areas where like malolactic is indigenous. Like I used to work in an old apple plant where malolactic bacteria was everywhere right um mm-hmm. like there there are areas where like that's it's just like really really hard to come by so it, it depends on where you are kind of geographically too and to successfully complete malolactic you, you've got to have your acids in line alcohol your bacteria are very very sensitive as are yeasts. like they don't like to work when it's too hot or too cold a lot like human beings things mm-hmm. like that uh, so it's it's finally time to get wine into the bottle and we've got like three main bottle styles the first is the is the burgundy and that started um right around the mid 1600s that was like the easiest for glass blowers to blow so if you buy a bottle of pinot noir from the from wegmans once again shout out wegmans i feel like we should be on their payroll Um, (laughs) it's got the long neck and the short kind of bottom to it the short Mm -hmm. stout sort of bottle 
And if you're blowing glass, it's a very easy mold to create. But not long after that came along, uh, came what's known as the Bordeaux style. So that's where um, you have the very high shoulder, straight side, short neck. Uh, if you get a bottle of so yeah, exactly. Or like Napa Valley's Cabernet Sauvignon, like that's what's going to be in that bottle. Mm-hmm. So when I, I talk about like now and I say that tradition is a very, very real part of what I do, Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, uh, things like Syrah will go into the Burgundy bottle, Cabernet Merlot, Malbec, Cab Franc, Petit Verdot, the big, the big Bordeaux's. Uh, will go into your your Bordeaux style, and then the the German style hot bottle, which is what you see a lot of Riesling in. That originated the around one. the same time, exactly the really really mm-hmm. tall one, and that has a purpose. So the German wine was shipped up and down the Rhine River, and they figured out very very fast that if you made the bottle thin and long, you can fit more bottles on the ship oh, that was sure. going up and down yeah. the river. Right, so that's where like traditionally that's where that bottle came from. So you see a lot of like. German and Austrian wine in that sort of like hawk shape, the very, very tall. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, that's like everything kind of has a purpose. And then finally, like you've got your your stopper, whether it be cork or a screw cap. Um, 95% of the cork in the world comes from Portugal. Right. A mm-hmm. little bit comes from a little bit from Spain, a little bit from Sicily, some from like Corsica, places like that. Most of it's from Portugal. Your screw top has a really, really bad rap. Um, Really, there's no like people think there's a there's a quality difference between a cork and a screw cap. There's not. One is like you can't you can't bottle a screw cap under a vacuum like you can with a cork. It's just like a function of the line. Mm. Um, but places like Chateau Margaux, like I talked about, like the four first growth Bordeaux right. of the world, they've been they've been experimenting with screw caps since the mid '80s, and there's really been like no difference in quality. It's just like. <laughs> It, yeah, seriously, it's a thousand dollar bottle, and they're they're doing and they it. They got a screw um, cap on it. That's great. Oh my well, god, that's amazing. They do it. They do it in their own like in their own way. But like if they're if they're selling on the market, it's a it's a cork. But they yeah. they've seen no difference in quality. It's just like the sexiness of when the sommelier brings you a bottle. Right. Julie, if you're at a dinner with Josh and like they they come out and they the som like twists the bottle and like you hear that <laughs> really really fun cracking sound uh-huh. and then you like your glass is that less fun than it's if not, you hear a it's not quite as yeah yeah, as yeah. theatrical like, there's a there's a whole consumer's perception around mm-hmm. a cork versus a screw cap mm-hmm. and so that's that's what we're working on i'm not, I'm not saying you're like breaking now but that's that's a, a consumer perception that's going to change within our lifetime in our area we see a lot of whites with screw tops but reds with cork yeah Absolutely, I would say I, I would agree people, with that. People see like whites with like immediate consumption. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. So the the screw cop is is fine. It's fine. Mm-hmm. It's also a lot easier if you're like planning a picnic to just yes. bring a screw top bottle with It'll you. Be like, oh yeah. no, pour that into a Seven Eleven Slurpee cup. No one knows the difference. We've done that. <laughs> We've done you that. Do? Yeah. The family. Seven Eleven Slurpee cup is so good for just pouring a bunch of rosé in and sitting outside. <laughs> In public, and maybe sometimes walking down the street during a festival. Just saying. I have a quiz. <gasps> Ooh. It's on fun facts about wine. Ooh, okay, great. Yes. Question number one Plus or minus 500. Tell me the number of wineries in the United States today in 2019. Question number two Holy repetitive motion, Batman. 
Name for me the job of title of the carpal tunnel stricken individual responsible for making the quarter turns on all those champagne bottles. Question number three. In order to declare a wine's vintage on the label, at least in the United States, what percentage of the grapes in the bottle must be from that vintage? Question number four. Rudy Kunuwaran, known as Dr. Conti, was arrested in 2012 and charged with mail fraud and wire fraud, stemming from a lawsuit filed by a very old, very rich white man. Some estimates put this individual's losses at close to $5 million. That's a lot of ring-dings and Pepsi! Who was this wealthy plaintiff? Question number five. I'm going to name some objects, and you're going to tell me if they're used for frost protection in vineyards. Smudge pot. Oxygen cannon. Overhead sprinkler. Helicopter. Question number six. True or false? A wine labeled organic in the United States is still permitted to contain sulfites. Question number seven. The Aussies have it right. The varietal Syrah is named for the city of Shiraz in what country? Question number eight. A really, really trashy movie starring Alan Rickman and Chris Pine was made regarding the real-life judgment of Paris, and it focused on the story of Chateau Montalina's Chardonnay defeating the best of white Burgundy. However, a different American producer was made the Cabernet that defeated the best of Bordeaux in the same tasting in 1976, named that Cabernet House. Question number nine. The wines of Chianti and Chianti Classico in Tuscany are predominantly made from which grape? Question number 10. The oldest wine in the world still in barrel. That's right, still in barrel. Currently resides in a cellar beneath the city hospital in Strasbourg, France. Plus or minus 50 years. How old is it? We'll give, we'll you-, give you a minute to do what you do. And we'll be back with the answers. <laughs> I'm praying for rain in California So the grapes can grow and they can make more wine And I'm sitting in a honky in Chicago With a broken heart and a woman on my mind I matched the man behind the bar For the jukebox And the music takes me back to Tennessee All right, this is a very difficult quiz. Um, I'm going to probably be relying very heavily on Julia for the answers to this, but all right. All right. All right. We're going to start. Go ahead. Hit us. Hit us. All right. And now for the answers. Plus or minus 500. Tell me the number of wineries in the United States today in 2019. In the U.S. Okay. Yes. 
Okay. I bet there's like easily 3,000 in California. Eas- easily in easily. California. There's a ton in New York State. Yeah. And there's places like Pennsylvania that yeah. as much as I love that state, their wine is abysmal. Yeah. Um, so I mean, you're very good at pulling a number. I'm kind of good at pulling. I don't know if you knew this about me. I'm very good at pulling out a random number that has nothing to do with anything. Uh, I pay attention to the podcast. I follow. Yeah. Yeah. Like your betting average is pretty high. 7356. 7356. All right, great. We're going to stick with 7356. So is that your final answer? <laughs> you both answered this before. Yeah. Uh, All right. Yes. Okay. Uh, so according to the TTB, which is the government organization that I uh, give so much money to every month, there are 10,043 that currently exist. Okay. Wow. Okay. Okay. That is a 50% increase since 2009. Ooh, wow. All right. I know. Uh, there are 4,500 in California alone, followed by um, about 800 in Oregon, Washington, seven in New York, Texas, and Virginia. Nice. Mm. Okay. But Texas, all 50 man. You haven't told us about Texas wine. It's getting there. It's getting there. There's a lot of good, a lot of good Spanish varietals and things oh, like Tempranillo, okay. things like that. Um, currently, all 50 states currently produce wine. Oh, wow. How about okay. that? Yeah. Look at that. Including Alaska. Get that ice wine. Yeah. Mm. Uh, Hawaii has had one since the mid-70s, I want to say. I got a friend of mine out there. Nice. All That's right. a sweet yeah. gig. <laughs> so, Making wine in Hawaii? Shit. Yeah, yeah, it's I'll not bad. It. A lot of pineapples. <laughs> yeah. That's that, dude. That's that's like throw the book out the window. It's totally fucking different. <laughs> uh, question number two: Holy repetitive motion, Batman. Name for me the job title of the carpal tunnel stricken individual responsible for making quarter turns in all those champagne bottles. So they just like you know it's in the shelves and they gotta go like this. So it's kind of like um, Snowpiercer with the. Child of hand that. motion. Did you see Snowpiercer, Garrett? Uh, I'm gonna just like go with you and say yeah. Uh, it's a great movie. You should watch it. It's so, great. Torn. Torn. Wait. So you've seen is this like, movie and I haven't. I thought you were the one with the list of movies. Who right? She sees weird. Things. I see weird movies. She doesn't see I the know. things that everybody has seen. She yeah, sees like see a the very weird, weird sci-fi film. Okay. Well, if you like sci-fi and if you like post-apocalyptic, like dark shit. Snowpiercer is the tits. You should watch it. Anyway, the guy oh, who I say that too. I love that. Thank you. You're, you're gonna like it. So torn. What's well. what's turn in French? What's turn? Tournay, like a tournier. Would tournier, be like a person who turns. Okay, I would say I would agree with you on that. How about tournier? Tournier. Uh, very very close. The answer is Riddler. Ah. Uh. <laughs> What does that even oh, mean? Oh, he said Holy repetitive motion. Oh, Batman. that's very good. That's a good, that's yes. a good little. Yeah. Oh, Dad. it's a little thing and they get better. Oh, man. <laughs> Question number three. In order to declare a wine's vintage on the label, at least in the United States, what percentage of the grapes in the bottle must be from that vintage? It's more than 50. I'm going to say 51%. Okay, great. We locking that in? Yeah. Yeah. The answer is actually 95%. Oh, oh shit. Yeah. So is that why we see a lot of like table wa- table red is yeah, just yeah. like a whole mix of stuff. You can see you can see like table red that's a whole mix of shit, but if they throw a year on there, it's gonna be at least 95% from that year. Oh wow. Okay. I love that. All right. Good but to know. however, if you're if you're in sh- like a place like Champagne, it's gotta be 100. Sure. Mm. Okay. 
So yeah. that's why they, they declare vintage like like three times a decade. Shoot. Yeah. Yeah, they have that those high standards. So if you're, if you're a, a winemaker in Champagne, you're making sparkling wine, which we didn't really get into because it's a whole other like topic of conversation. Yeah. Um, they'll hold like 85% from current vintage and blend in like 15% of others to kind of bring things into balance. Mm, okay. okay, good to know. Yeah, but they're, they're a lot more... I was going to say they're a lot more strict than we are, which is a lot to be said for uh, America. Mm-hmm. Question number four. Rudy Kuno Warren, known as Dr. Conti, was arrested in 2012 and charged with mail fraud and wire fraud, stemming from a lawsuit followed by a very old, very rich white man. Some estimates put this individual losses at $5 million, and that's a lot of ring dings and Pepsi. Who is this wealthy plaintiff? Is this just so you could get us to say cock on air? Oh, is uh, it is it one of the Coke brothers? Is it Coke? Is it Coke? It is. It is. I'm going to give it to you. It's Great. Bill Coke. It's Coke. Yeah, it's but, pronounced uh, Coke, Julia. C H. That's Coke. It's Coke. They pronounce it Coke. <laughs> they're they're Republican donors. They're going to pronounce it Coke. <laughs> That's awesome. I had a feeling you get this. Uh, yeah. If you want to see more on the story, my. Um, my attorney wife was actually really turned on by this documentary. It's called Sour Grapes. Yes, that's a how very good doc. One dude ripped off an entire it's industry. It's shocking. When I first started watching that, I thought it was about the billionaire's vinegar. I thought it was about that whole, like, you'd already seen it. Yeah, I was yeah. like, oh, I already read this book. But then I realized that it was a completely different wine like <laughs> scandal. Um, and it's great. It's a good mm-hmm. documentary, and it's a really interesting story. If you like, if you like true crime and you like wine and you like like deception and things like that, I have a, a friend of mine who's actually a he's a retailer in Sonoma County. He still has pallets of wine to this dude who's currently rotting in federal prison. Oh my god, what a nightmare. yeah yeah. Um, so I don't want to blow it for you. It's it's worth a watch. Uh, question number five. I'm going to name some objects and you're going to tell me if they're used for frost protection in vineyards. Okay. Uh, smudge pot. I'm going to say yes. Okay. You can you can agree or okay, disagree. I'll say no. Okay. Uh, the answer is yes. Okay. So it's a it's a burn pot that actually like is located very close to the surface of the vines and the heat will radiate around the fruit in the fruiting zone and it'll keep uh, it'll actually keep like things from dying on the vine. Um, if you if you Google pictures of like burgundy in 2019 like very early april like there were a bunch of these pots on fire because they had all this frost it's it's like really really sad you can see it from the air like it's wow it's just like a really really tragic situation um anyway moving on <laughs> oxygen cannon do you think that's a real thing i don't think it's a real i i'm gonna say no <laughs> <laughs> yeah okay i'll say no uh, you are correct. It is actually used for uh, hail prevention in uh, places like Barolo and not yet Barbaresco, but Barolo. So it's an acetylene oxygen cannon that they actually like fire into these clouds and break the cloud up before it can rain hail on your crop. Oh, uh, like that cartoon the where they get the yeah. pills for the weather mm-hmm. and they spit them into the, they spit into them the into air. The, yep. Yeah, like that. It looks I'm... like it looks like an anti-aircraft gun, which is probably a little too real for a lot of these people living oh there because they mm-hmm. live through the war. Yeah, but it, it works. And I mean, like, that's your that's your livelihood on the vine. Yeah, exactly. For 
nine months. Uh, overhead sprinkler. Hmm. Do we think that helps with frost? I'm going to say yes, because liquid water is warmer than frozen water. And I think it's like the idea of like putting salt on onto ice onto ice. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to say yes for the sure. sprinkler. Yes. Lauren is a thousand percent right yes. on that. So moving water, does, moving water does not freeze. And the Italians use this to perfection. Shout out Italy. Nice. Uh, helicopter. I'm going to say no, because, because I imagine fuel for a helicopter is way more expensive. I think it would also, um, blow the stuff off of the vines. Yes. Okay. So we're going to say no. Uh, the answer is yes. There <gasps> are people who are willing to pay by the hour, no. especially in the region live for a helicopter to hover over their vineyard blocks. Screaming Eagle. <laughs> so wait, is this in I, California? I, you I mean? cannot, I cannot speak for certain that it mm-hmm. is them, but it is like in the same price range. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you're high enough off the ground, it does not blow your very delicate fruit off uh. the vine. Okay. Um, but that is a thing, and it is a viable business out here. Can you imagine that if you mess that up, though? Oh, my God, you blow off. Dude, you're, you're fired. <laughs> fired guy. Well, you know, the idea of, like, cold air sinks and hot air rises, so the idea of, like, circulating that air okay. and using a fan that is essentially, like, a ceiling fan yeah. that circulates that air makes sense, but it seems too expensive but I guess in California, that doesn't matter. When we were in Niagara-on-the-Lake, we were at a winery, and they they told us that um, whenever like the cold front is about to come in from the lake, mm-hmm. that all of the wineries like turn their big fans on and then like blow the air like either over their over their crop or like away from their crop, like depending on what the weather is supposed to do. Because they're so close to the lake. Yeah, it's like really fascinating like they'll be like oh it's gonna be like a warm front coming in from the lake and they like turn all their fans on a certain way to like help their crops it's crazy yeah they're like big um what are they called windmills yeah yeah Yeah. they're like 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 big turbines like it turns that inversion layer you were talking about and it gets that hot air closer to your vines and also that moving air does not freeze Mm -hmm. so uh yeah there are um out here we have we have like a phone service and an app that says like when you get below thirty three degrees, which which when you're gonna get frost, mm-hmm. uh, turn your fans on. Nice. So it's uh yeah, yeah, it's 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 pretty cool and like that saves you eight months worth of heartache. <laughs> yeah, just <I'm> kidding. <laughs> yeah, so uh question number six, true or false, a wine labeled organic in the United States is still permitted to contain sulfites. I'm gonna true. say true, yeah. True. Uh, that is true. So yeast by themselves through the stress of fermentation and things like that uh, will produce about 10 parts per million uh, sulfite, which is like um, like a natural product of fermentation, like a, like a stress product. Uh, so anything over 10 ppm in the United States has to be labeled as contains sulfites. But if you're, if you're organic, you're labeled as wine, like organic wine, you can't add any. Okay. However, if your wine made from organic grapes, you can add 100 parts per million. So it's all about reading the label and like knowing about what's going on. I say, okay, good to know. There are also like pesticides that are approved for organic use. So that's yeah. where people think like, oh, I'm drinking clean. Like, mm, actually, like it's not going to kill you, but there are still like these things you're trying to avoid that are approved for the use that you do not want. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. 
that's like working for a biodynamic wine house. Like that was something that it was it was a real life for me in, in 2013. But anyway, moving on. Uh, no question number seven. The Aussies have it right. The varietal Syrah is named for the city of Shiraz in what country? All right. Let's talk countries. All right. Let's talk countries. Spain. Spain. Sure. Uh, Middle East. Somewhere in the Middle East. Syrah. Shiraz sounds like a. It sounds like Shiraz. Like like Australian. Why don't you pull me a glass of Shiraz? Syrah. Wait. Syrah. So the the Australians call it Shiraz. Uh Uh-huh. Wait. Are we trying to name where? (laughs) You're trying to tell me. Tell me where the city is. Which city? Which one? Uh, Shiraz. 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 Yeah. Um, Shiraz. Uh, maybe South Africa? South Africa. South Africa. Um, New Zealand? New Zealand. New Zealand. <laughs> we have like one listener on, in New Zealand. We don't want to offend them. No, no. Um, well, I have no idea. I'm going to say, I personally, I'm going to say South Africa. Okay. And I'll just say Spain. Okay. Uh, you're both close, except for the country and the continent. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you. It is uh, it is Iran. It is actually the fifth most populous <gasps> city in close. Iran. All right. Wow. Okay. Yeah, you got to go close. back. You got to go back to like Fertile Crescent days, like okay. that early. Ooh, yeah, Mesopotamian. Okay. okay. Now I know that what? I've had a Syrah rosé from Lebanon. Oh, okay. And that feels like they're close enough to Iran that they should call it. Yeah. What it is, Absolutely. but okay. You never know. You just give yourself a little plus one and put a mark on the refrigerator for that category. There you go. <laughs> Question number eight, a really, really trashy movie starring Alan Rickman and Chris Pine was made regarding the real-life judgment of Paris in 1976, and it focused on the story of Chateau Montalina's Chardonnay defeating the best of white burgundy. However, an American Cabernet Sauvignon was made that defeated the best of Bordeaux at the same tasting name that Cabernet house. So I was sure you were going to ask what the movie was. Mm-hmm. And I was like, boom, I got it. Bottle mm-hmm. shock. Mm-hmm. I've never seen it, but whatever. Uh huh. Um, but mm, this is, is going to be all Is it you. in California? It is in California. It's actually down the road from where I live. Well, there you go. It doesn't help you. Um, give us a first letter. S. Screaming Eagle. No. Oh. Screaming Eagle did not exist until 1992. All right. Oh, damn. <laughs> um, like a deer. Stags. Stag. Stag deer. head. Stag head. Stag, Stag run. Run. Stag creek. Oh. Stag, Stag run. run. Stag run. Stag oh. run. Of- Stags. <laughs> Stags I want to yell so many things. I want to yell so many things. What is it? Just tell us. Just fucking tell us. Stags leap. Stags leap. Stags leap wine cellars. Oh my god, oh, man, we were so very close. close. I'm gonna give it to you because you're, Thank oh, you. you're so awesome. Thank you. I appreciate and you spent that. So much time with me, and Thank this you. is this is good. Wow, my, we get points my for like, like shaking head closeness. <laughs> just being around. It's great. Just, being, just hanging out. <laughs> I'm gonna give it to you. That's just oh, it's so fucking awesome. So, question number nine: The wines of Chianti and Chianti Classico in Tuscany are predominantly made of which grape? So I would have said Sangiovese, but we talked about Sangiovese like at some point during this episode. So I, I mean, don't know if that is too. And just because he mentioned it doesn't mean that it's not an answer to a question. Okay. 
That yeah, I'll go Sangiovese. I I'm gonna agree with Julia because I don't have a better answer. Sangiovese nice. is the correct answer. Boom. You guys know your stuff. Uh, finally, question number 10. The oldest wine in the world, still in barrel. That's right, still in barrel. Currently resides in a cellar beneath the city hospital in Strasbourg, France. Plus or minus 50 years. How old is it? Okay. How old is it? Plus or minus 50 years. Okay. So I'm going to say... I'm thinking like 1689. Ooh, okay. I was thinking like 1750. Okay. But 1689 is pretty good. 1689 gives us to 1740 and uh, 1650. Okay. So let's round it up to 1690. Oh, we do a lot of math right now. 1690. I think that's pretty good. Okay. So 2019 yeah. minus 1690 equals. <laughs> oh, God. Math is hard. Everybody phones out. Here no, we no, go. no. 1690, 1690, 1990. Well, it has only been sampled three times that we know of. Uh, once in 1576 to celebrate the alliance between Strasbourg and Zurich. Okay. The second time, 1716, after the hospital burned down. <laughs> so we're like, oh. Oh, we should check on hospitals. that. Uh, that's no, still good. Yeah, you can rebuild. That's fine. <laughs> and the last time in 1944, after Strasbourg was liberated by the Allies. Oh my gosh. Is that like the dream? Is that like is that like every winemaker's like aspirational place to get to to like test uh, it or anything? I'm kind of happy where we're at, to be honest with you. Like, I'd, He's love, content. I'd love to taste it, but like what are we gonna do to it? Seriously. Yeah. Uh, so it is yeah, going on five hundred and forty seven years oh old. My oh my gosh. gosh. There is a there is a bottle out there, um, supposedly from the Roman Empire. But its authenticity is unconfirmed. Questionable. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That, so wow. it's, that can't be good. I mean, after a certain point, I feel like wine isn't like it. No. There's it's a bell curve. I feel like it peaks at some point and then and then it's just vinegar no, after a while. That's that's absolutely right. So like it'll and then it'll fall apart um it was open once in the early i want to say like 30s or 40s but now like they're debating whether or not to open it again and actually analyze it oh Jeez. my gosh oh my gosh but it, it's just it looks like this big gelatinous viscous mass right. uh, no shit yeah like, not something you want to put in your mouth no, no absolutely not <laughs> that that is that is the correct bodily response thank you <laughs> Yeah, no, thank you. On that note. And with that, that is like a quiz on <laughs> just fun facts about wine. And it's humbling even for me because I didn't even know most of these. <laughs> thank you, Garrett. This thank was you, Garrett. wonderful. What a great. Oh and my I am gosh. kind of drunk. 
I don't know how I'm going to get home. But two that very is my superpower is getting people drunk. Um, two really lovely bottles of wine that you have sent to us, yes. which was very kind. Oh my And gosh. a wonderful topic about wine and winemaking, which I think our listeners will really love. It's a little bit of a longer episode, but we'll warn everybody. It's, fine. it's totally fine. People it's like fine. a long episode. Um, well, thank you very much. It's been an honor to be uh, just part of your Friday night with oh. both of you. And like I said, I'm a big fan. And if I can contribute to the to the content you're putting out there, that that keeps me from like putting a fork in my eye. I'm like, <laughs> oh, that's so I kind. Really, like oh, you guys Garrett. are fantastic. That's the love it, yeah. lovely. Thank you, thank you very like seriously from the bottom of my heart. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you for this coming. This was on. wonderful. Yeah. Do you have anything to plug? Yeah. Do you want to plug anything? Can I? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Go to town. Oh, uh, shit. If you're ever in like a really remote part of Napa, just go up Pal Mountain Road and visit Pope Valley Winery. Yeah, we're we're kind of out of the way, but like, you, like you've been drinking all night. There's some really good rosés, some really good SB. We're doing some really exciting things. Small production. We got some bocce ball going on. Nice. Uh, we got this country music concert on uh, June 29th. Um, come drink my wine because you know what? It's going to keep my lights on. So please. <laughs> <laughs> and do you need a reservation to come taste there? Or uh, you, can, you just... can, but seriously, like we're so far out of the way. We're just happy to see people show up. Great. So ordinarily it's like, Hey, you lost. No, we're here. Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> Great. And, uh, we'll share a link to Pope Valley winery. Um, Absolutely. When we post this episode. So, and their wine awesome. is excellent. It's I can excellent. attest to we their wouldn't quality. Lie to you. No, we absolutely would not. Thank you, Garrett. And thanks so much thanks, for listening, Garrett. guys. Oh, ladies, thank you very much. <laughs> if you would like to get in touch with us, uh, you can email us at misinfopod at gmail.com. You can tweet at us at misinfopod. Uh, we have a Facebook page, misinformation, uh, colon, a trivia podcast. Send us a message. Uh, and you can also go to our website, www.misinfopod.com. And you can stream us on our website and you can find us pretty much anywhere where podcasts are. And my voice just changed because there's a dog on our, oh, t- on our so computer screen now. Oh. So anyway, we're going to go chat with this dog now. We really like you guys, though. Thank you so much for listening. This is a good boy. Well, thanks for listening, guys. And we'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye. <laughs>